Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Isaiah chapter 64. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Um, I'll make sure to read along so you can follow along with me when I'm reading. And, and next week, we actually have a couple cases of Bibles ordered. Um, if you don't actually own a Bible, come see me because we have those coming in and um, we'll be more than happy to give those to you. Um, we have a strong conviction that the Bible is the Word of God here. Um, and so we want to be uh, a portal for that. We want to hand those out for whoever needs them. So if you, you actually don't have a personal copy of the Scriptures, see me afterwards and we'll be sure to get you one. Um, there's a kindergarten uh, teacher who um, needed just a filler for a class one day. Um, and so what she did was she just told her, all her kids to just draw a picture of whatever they thought of. Um, she was wandering around the room, keeping an eye on them, and she was stopping at every child's desk and asking them what they decided to draw. And nothing really caught this teacher off guard until she got to a certain boy's desk. And she approached him and politely asked the little boy what he was drawing. Without even stopping or pausing or even looking up at his teacher, he just kept drawing and he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher thought this was kind of cute and smiled and... Uh, but then she pressed further. She said, but you, you understand that nobody really knows what God looks like, right? At that point, the little boy stopped drawing and he put down his crowns and he gave the teacher a frustrated look and said, well, if you just leave me alone here in a minute, they will. Now, you see, despite his claims, we don't know what God looks like, do we? And this is an us problem. It's not his fault. It's our weak and limited and sinful state that doesn't allow us to see God in his fullness. The problem isn't that God cannot be fully known or seen. It's that we don't have the minds or eyes to know and see him fully. Yet that has never stopped humanity from forming our own views of him. And we're in the second week of the series we're calling what God says about himself. And it's based on the idea that, that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And whether you realize it or not, your view of God determines so much about who you are, about your priorities and the way that you view others and the way you live your life. And so in this series, we want to drop everyone's opinions. We want to drop what, what people are saying. We just want to search the Bible and discover who God says he is. Because you see, God knew how important this was. And in his grace, he has revealed himself to us through the words of his Bible. That in his word, he tells us everything we need to know about him. Now, one of the things that human beings have often done in an attempt to, to understand God is that we make him understandable. We relate to him or respond to him or, or treat him in a way that is known and comfortable to us. We make him out to be like something or someone we know, we know and, and we do this by assigning him roles or duties, if you will, um, to help us understand him more. And the problem is that God never claimed to hold these roles or play by those rules. I can remember during my days in school, it may be different now, but back, way back when, when I was in school, there was always one room that you didn't want to go to. This room carried sort of an, an a stigma, an aura to it, that just the mention of it would often bring a wayward child um, right back into line. That room was the principal's office. All it took was a teacher saying, Brett, do you want to go to the principal's office to straighten me right up? Because I knew there was only one reason you would go to the principal's office, you're going to get in trouble. Your dad would get called. Your life would be over, or so it seemed. See, the principal wore a suit. Nobody else at school wore a suit. He had the biggest office. When he walked down the hallway, you were just a little scared of him. And sure, he'd smile at you. He'd tell you hello. And 
And that one day a year, on academic awards day, if you were a good student, he'd, take, he'd shake your hand and give you a little ribbon and tell you a good job. But your goal was to get through the year on the straight and narrow so you'd never, ever have to be called into his office. You know what? So many people view God in that same light. That their goal and purpose is to live just straight enough, just good enough to not gather any unwanted attention from him. If they're a good enough person, for example, if they're nice to people, or they, they go to church every now and then, or they help out their neighbor, or they be a dependable parent, he might even from time to time shake their hand and give them a little blessing. But his main role in their eyes is to sit in heaven and wait and observe, to let everything play out. And when they get too far out of line, he'll pay them a visit and bring them back into line. And remove himself again. This sort of view tragically has even been enhanced by the posturing and viewpoints of some Christian traditions and leaders. We paint a picture of this disciplinarian dictator that only intervenes in your life when you finally ticked him off enough. So the logical conclusion is just try to live life in a way that you, you don't stand out anymore. That was my goal in elementary school. I in no way wanted to be on a first name basis with the principal. As far as I was concerned, I was doing my job if we never even had a conversation. And so people go through this life trying to maintain a level of, of goodness in order to not be visited by the divine boogie monster. Because their view of God is that he operates in that manner like a principal. It's another view of God, and one that's carried almost exclusively in Christian circles. See, Christians believe because the Bible teaches that God has a will, or a plan, if you will, for your life. And the discovery of this will drives so much Christian teaching and effort and book sales and studies and, and angst and worry and stress and prayers. It's because we put so much pressure on it. We get so stressed and so anxious and have these crises of faith. Because we can't in that second figure out what, what God's full ultimate will is for us. And what happens is that, we, that well-meaning Christians have this overwhelming desire for God to just act like a traffic cop. That their relationship with God is based on one key thing. God, just tell me what to do. They want him to say, okay, you go here. And you go there. And that, there's a green light down that path, but there's a red light down that one. You're not supposed to go that way. And their prayer time and, and their church time and their time in the word and all their time in relations with him is it's completely wrapped up in this desire for practical direction in their life. And what they want more than anything is God's answers. What they want more than anything is God's direction. And if he really has a will for their life, then he should want to tell them they convince themselves. Do you see, we're looking... At what God says about himself, not what we forecast onto him. And the question that begs is, does God give himself a role in the Bible? Is there a role or an identity or a purpose that God in his ultimate wisdom has decided that he will play in your life? Look at Isaiah chapter 64, we're going to start in verse 1. Isaiah 64 says, Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. Your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome things beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. 
For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works on those who wait for him. Isaiah is trying to paint a picture here of who God is. This is not a distant being. This is not your buddy. It's not your dad or your principal or traffic cop. This is the most powerful being in the universe. If he actually rendered his presence from heaven to here, even the mountains would shake and tremble. And yet, in verse 8, listen to the role that that God gives us for our lives. Verse 8. And yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. See, the God of the universe, describing in his word how he, look, how he works in our lives, he calls himself the potter. Describes us as clay. See, this is not a distant, far-off relationship to be avoided. This is not a relationship based on just guidance and direction. This is an image of a careful, devoted, loving craftsman forming a beautiful piece of art from what was once just a lump of clay. And the thing is that God has tried to get us to understand this from the beginning of time. Way back at the very start of the Bible, we have in the book of Genesis the account of the creation of the world. And in Genesis 2, he describes for us how the first man was created in verse 7 when it says, and listen to these words, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed the breath of life in the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. From the very beginning, the relationship and the roles were established between God and man. Left to ourselves, we are dust, we are dirt, we are clay, we are nothing. We only exist because God gave us life. But you see, God is not just interested in assuming a mass assembling pieces for his creation. No, instead he says that we, in his power, in his might, in his love, in his goodness, he doesn't simply make us. He forms us. That's what he says. He takes his sweet time. He molds us. He is not in a hurry. His eyes are on us. His attention is on us. His hands are on us. And he is taking that lump of clay, that pile of dirt, and making something beautiful out of it. And yeah... One look around, one viewing of the six o'clock news, one glance at your medical records or your bank account, and as it currently stands, things don't always look beautiful, do they? But you see, he's forming us in a way that we'd never choose. He's forming us in a way that takes longer than we would like because he's forming us in the way that we can only really be formed. He's forming us with grace. Something you must know about the potter. He is paid dearly to have your clay in his hands. Because he had to act and move and pay a dear price even to have the opportunity to be the potter in our lives. The reality, you see, the reality of our current world is that we have all sinned. Every one of us. All of us have done things wrong in our lives and, and the one thing that we know about God is that he's holy and he is perfect and he is without sin. And so because of our sin and because of our imperfection, we owe a debt to a perfect holy God. There is a gap between us and God. And the Bible says we cannot fill that gap. There is no amount of church services that you can attend, no amount of money you can give, no amount of prayers that you can say, no amount of goodness or niceness that you can achieve that will ever fill that gap. 
And so what God did was he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we could never live. And then he put Jesus on the, to death on a cross in order to pay the sin debt that we could never pay. So that all who respond in humility and faith to Jesus' death, asking God to forgive them because of it, they can have their debt erased. The gap between them and God is closed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, almost all churches agree on that. But it's at that very point where people get confused. To the ones who see God as a disciplinarian, they've never realized that he has poured out the eternal punishment for his sin on, their own, on his own son. That he died to offer them life. Those who genuinely place their faith in Christ and receive that forgiveness then still see God as a traffic cop. And they never came to the realization that Jesus didn't suffer. He didn't endure. He didn't embrace death on your behalf just so he could give you a map and tell you where to go. He was interested in so much more than that. What God wants, what the potter wants is to form the person, to form the heart, to literally form your soul. See, he is much less concerned with where you go than with who you are. He's much less concerned with the decisions you make than he is concerned over your heart that pushes you to make those decisions. He actually didn't suffer and die so that you could have answers. He died so that you could have him. You see, he has a will for you. He has a plan. But what he's really interested in is forming you and molding you to the point where your number one desire is just for him. And not his answers to your prayers. And that's what the great potter recognizes. God knows that the gap between us and him has been filled for all who respond in faith to Jesus' death. But there is a gap that still exists. There is a gap today. There's a gap between who I am today and who God has created me to be. There really is. We can hear the anguish of this. Just jump off the pages in Paul's writings to the churches in the New Testament. To Rome. When he wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 7, he has that horrible admission that the good that he wants to do, he doesn't do it. Yet the evil that he hates doing, he just keeps on doing it. You can hear the anguish as he writes. To Philippi, he talks about how he's not already obtained the prize in Christ Jesus, but he's pressing on towards the goal. In Romans, he describes our dual realities of living life by God's spirit within us, while also living with this sinful flesh and how those are always combating with each other. There is a gap. There's a gap between you that you are right now and you that God made you to be. You see, the problem isn't just the existence of the gap. The problem is that we think we have to fill it. Somewhere we have become convinced that we cannot do anything to earn God's salvation, which is true. But then also believe that once that is in place, our spiritual journeys and our lives and our marriages and our growth, all that is somehow dependent on us. And we try to live out this dichotomy of believing that it's by God's grace and freedom and work alone that I can even have a relationship with him. But once that relationship is in place, it's up to me to become who I'm supposed to be. The problem is, isn't that it just doesn't make sense. The problem is, it's also not what God prescribes in Scripture. God established the man-God relationship on the cross. And all gaps, he says, are filled by grace. All gaps. Not human effort. 
It's why in Genesis 2, he described for us that, that he could have made Adam any way he wants, but he says, I formed Adam out of the dirt on the ground. In Isaiah 64, he says, I am the potter, you are the clay. And he's taking ownership of the clay, you see. That's what a potter does. He takes ownership of the clay. The clay does not form itself. The potter forms the clay. Ephesians 2, the New Testament picks up on this when Paul says, and hear these words. Paul writes, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You know what that verse is saying? It's huge. Don't miss it. This is what Paul is saying. Your life is not your project. Your life is actually not your project. We are God's masterpiece. We are his workmanship. We are his handiwork. We are his project because God alone knows fully who you were intended to be. And if you think about it long enough, if you search the recesses of your mind and pull up memories long enough, you'll be able to realize the times in your life where he actually gave you a glimpse of who he made you to be. Somebody interrupted your day and yet you stopped and listened. You felt led to give sacrificially and you did it. You fell in love. You made something with your own hands, you, with the talents that God gave you. You used your passions, you used your interests, but you used them not for your gain, but for the good of his kingdom and others. You stopped, if even just for a moment, to see the stars or the sunrise or sunset, and you were awed by his creation. You called or wrote or visited someone who just popped in your head, and the conversation that you had was beyond what you could have imagined. You forgave someone. You prayed with someone created a work of art or wrote a song or expressed compassion to a hurting soul. And whatever it was, there was this confirming moment from God. This is why I made you. This is what I had in mind when I created you. And though we so often miss those moments, we snuff them out with our pride or our hurriedness or our schedule or our calendar, the potter says he will be faithful. He is at work all the time and everywhere we go and his hands are on us and he is not about to give up. In Philippians 1, Paul writes, and I am certain, there's no doubt there, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Did you catch that? The potter began his work when he first picked you up. And over time, he's taken that unformed lump of dirt and he's making a masterpiece. And the God who never breaks a promise, promises in his word that he will not stop until the masterpiece is completed. So what does this mean? How does this play out in your life? What's this look like Monday morning at work or Wednesday at Walmart? You see, there are ramifications to this truth. There are ways this impacts your living. And the first ramification is that you don't have to rely on self anymore. As much as self-effort and self-sufficiency is worshipped in America, it never pays off any of the benefits it promises. If God is the potter and I am the clay, then a lot of pressure is taken off my shoulders. Shoulders. The New Testament teaches that when we, when we call out to God in faith, he not only just forgives our sins, but he actually takes up residence inside of us. And we know this as the Holy Spirit. 
And this is what we're told of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. So it is not my job or my effort or my growth or my desire or my dedication that changes me into who I'm supposed to be. I'll say it again to make sure you get it. It is not my job or my effort or my growth or my desire or my dedication that changes me into who I'm supposed to be. It is completely the work of God with his hands forming from the outside and his spirit working from the inside, changing me in his power. You see, now it's just you and God and you can live in the flow of that spirit. And you don't have to pretend, you really don't. You can be open about your flaws. You can be open about your imperfections because it's not your job to fix them. You don't have to live in fear. You can love others just the way they are because they're imperfect just like you. You can forgive others. And as you live life in the spirit, your life will flourish as you realize not only is this not all up to you, it's not about you. Life is just not about you. There is freedom and release and joy when you embrace life in the hands of the potter. But you see, that's the second ramification of this. It's not just that we don't have to rely on self anymore. It's that we can't fill our lives with self anymore. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench it. The one thing that frees up God's power of change and transformation in our lives more than anything else is humble submission. It's putting the guard down. It's the end of the pursuit of us and the life that I want and the person that I want to be. This is John the Baptist saying to Jesus, I must decrease. I must become less. He must become greater. You see, we aren't our own creator. It's the surrender of control and the release of these sinful and selfish pursuits. It's, it's no different than the way that God has formed and established his relationship with you in the very beginning. He does all the work, and when there is humble, faith-driven submission, grace just flows, and it flows abundantly. And this is key and it is vital, because deep down, every one of us wants to be the potter. In our sinful nature, we want control. And there's this incredible, important lesson right in the middle of God calling himself the potter. It's simple, but it's powerful. He's reminding us that we are clay. And clay doesn't get a final say in the design. In fact, listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah 45. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop it, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? God is telling you here in that verse, your life is my project. Who you were created to be is my design. You don't actually get to tell me what to do. But don't you see, every time I sin, every time that you sin, we decide in that moment that we know better than God. We know what he desires from us. We know who he wants us to be. But right then, in that moment, we're going to go our own way. And what's scary and what halts transformation is a heart so stubborn and so unwilling to submit humbly to God over years and years and years. And God says, if you do that, 
great sorrow awaits. You see, it's not beyond the scope and the ability of the potter to break the clay in order to be able to reform it. You see, submitting to God's work in our lives through humility is what is best for us. It's what gets us closer to who we are made to be because he is working, not us. But humble submission, make no mistake about it, requires faith. Requires faith because we must trust the potter at all times. There's going to be times when he is working on you that it's going to get quite uncomfortable. There may even be times of confusion. There will be times that he asks something of you, something that you would never want to give or do. A step of faith, a, a conversation that you'd just rather not have. An admission to a loved one of how much you've hurt them. Career change or an act of just pure sacrifice, whatever it may be. It's in those times that we can, we can go the easy, safe and comfortable and secure out without ever submitting to his leading. Or we can trust the potter. We can trust in his hands and his leading and his work. Because if you trust the potter, if you submit to his work in your life, there's one more thing you must know. Your life will not look anything like you planned it. There will be valleys and struggles and temptations and trials. All designed for unique purposes. But all designed to deepen your reliance on him. And it's during them that you must hold true to the belief and the promise that he will not stop until your masterpiece is finished. I got an incredibly discouraging call this week. One that shook me almost more than I've ever received and I wasn't even ready for it. It's a dear, dear couple who lives in Cloverdale. They're actually neighbors uh, with my parents there. And at my previous church, they began attending a few years ago. And I got to watch firsthand as the potter went to work in their lives. One of the greatest privileges of my life was being able to baptize the husband of this couple, a man named Pat. I watched as God snatched him from spiritual death and brought him into life in his 60s. That almost never happened. Pat's wife, Annie, has been on dialysis for over a decade. Her kidneys have not worked for 12 years. So many people have been praying and praying and praying that she could just get a kidney transplant. Finally, earlier this year, she was placed at the top of the donor list. It's the biggest news in over a decade, but almost immediately, she failed a stress test due to a heart condition. And was taken right off the list. Now throughout her struggle, you'd never find anyone more positive than Annie. You'd never find anyone who relied on the potter more than Annie. You'd never find anyone whose faith could never be shaken more than Annie. And this rubbed off on Pat. It was contagious. And he's taken care of her every single step of the way. And they took this most recent challenge on as well. Because about 12 days ago, Annie underwent open heart surgery. And there was a really high probability she'd never make it through. But you couldn't tell Pat that. Talk to him that morning. He was already telling me how he's going to care for Annie after the surgery. And how if this was successful, they're going to get her back on the transplant list. And how this was going to work out. But the surgery went really well. 
really well. Um, beyond what we could have ever expected. But as happens sometimes in these situations, there have been some post-surgery complications. And they've piled up all this week. And it all culminated Friday morning when I got the call and basically the report was this. This looks like the end. This might be the one final hurdle that Annie doesn't come back from. And I just hung up the phone and I went into my bedroom and I was just distraught. And this passage had been on my mind all week and I thought, what in the world is the potter up to here? What kind of vessel doesn't have working kidneys? What plan involves a woman whose complete reliance is on you and so many people are praying to not see the result that we're praying for? I do you disservice if I act like I wasn't immune or if I was immune to those questions. Right as I was thinking these things, my phone buzzes. It's a text message from Pam Akers. And this is what the text read. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's Isaiah 40. See, that text might have came from Pam's phone, but that message was not from Pam. It was a message I needed to hear at that moment, a message from the great potter to me saying, my hands are still on this. And I will complete my masterpiece. Regardless of the struggles that Annie or others may face here, I will complete my work. And when I am done, her glory will radiate mine throughout all eternity. You see, whether or not you've ever called out to God in faith for forgiveness... Are you just struggling with the same persistent and consistent sin? Are you facing something that you just don't understand? Or are you being asked to take a step of faith? Or, or even if life's just pretty good right now. Submit in humility and faith to God. Surrender control to the potter. Because his one overarching promise is that he will not quit until he is finished. And trust me, when his work is done, no matter what the cost of it, it's going to be worth the wait. Let's pray. Father, even the image of being formed is uncomfortable. Being twisted and pushed and pulled and flattened, rounded, whatever it may be. But God, you never promised us comfort. You just promised us your work. God revealed to us that areas in our lives that we have been trying to live as if we are the potter. The times we've surrendered to the idolatry of control.
the times that we've believed it was up to us to overcome the sin. Make us profoundly aware this morning, God, that we are just clay. And help us to submit in humility and faith to your work in our lives. No matter what the cost. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.